At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course! We are dead! We are all dead! We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane! Man is even capable of nothing but destruction! Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies, and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is. It just is. Especially when you get the audio version of Aeon Byte Live, episode 43, raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. Jason Reza Giorgiani arrived at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new novel, Faustian Futurist. The book combines many of his ideas, like Prometheism, and brings to the table exciting topics like Atlantis, UFOs, breakaway civilizations, and remote viewing. We also had some holiday fun talking about Gnostic themes in film and other art forms, as well as Philip K. Dick and other thinkers. As a bonus, and I mentioned during the interview, I will include a past interview with Ramona Fradon on her book, The Gnostic Faustus. Since much of Jason's novel is dependent on the legend of Faustus and Mephistopheles, I thought you might find this very useful. And it's an incredible interview with a deep researcher and one of the legends when it comes to comic books. Don't miss it. Truly appreciate those of you who continually support. I can't do it without you. Please continue to help me grow this red pill cafeteria. 
We need Gnosis more than ever, needless to say. And we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up or simply cope in these Gnostic times. You won't find this high quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guess and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. A new finding Hermes is coming out in a few days, just in time for the rising holiday season and the end of this mirror maze year. Don't go anywhere. But enough of my short drivel. Let us do our latest AB Live. The Empire never ended. And, as you'll find out, neither have the Nazis or the Atlanteans. The fight has just begun. What's wrong with this country, Marty? Money, you taught me that. Evil defense contractors had it, noble causes did not. Politicians are bought and sold like so much chattel. Our problems multiply. Pollution, crime, drugs, poverty, disease, hunger, despair. We throw gobs of money at them. Problems always get worse. Why is that? Because money's most powerful ability is to allow bad people to continue doing bad things at the expense of those who don't have it. I agree. Listen, when I was in prison, I learned that everything in this world, including money, operates not on reality, but the perception of reality. People think a bank might be financially shaky. Consequence, people start to withdraw their money. Result, pretty soon it is financially shaky. Conclusion, you can make banks fail. Psst. I've already done that. Maybe you've read about a few. <laughs> think bigger. Stock market? Yes. Currency market? Yes. Commodities market? Yes. Small countries? I might even be able to crash the whole damn system. Destroy all records of ownership. Think of it, Marty. No more rich people, no more poor people. Everybody's the same. Isn't that what we said we always wanted? Because you haven't gone crazy, have you? Have you? Who else is going to change the world, Marty? Greenpeace? <laughs> you are crazy. All right. Well, we are live. Welcome, everybody, to AB Live. Uh, maybe you consider this uh, a holiday special. And as I often say during the holidays, Merry Matrix and a Heilig New Year. My ironic Gnostic greeting. But very excited tonight and a lot going on. So welcome, everybody, to the desert of the real. And it's always a pleasure to have my friend and one of my favorite guests, Jason Reza Giorgiani here at the Virtual Alexandria. Jason, happy holidays, and how's everything? Season's greetings to you, Miguel. It's great to be with you again, and uh, uh, great to always see you again, Vance, as well. Yes. Hello, Vance. How are you? I'm hanging in. Not too bad on this nice, what is it, Friday or Saturday? Friday evening. <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> my COVID Friday. calendar here, you know. <laughs> yeah, time is stopped and melted. Yes, Friday's night's all right for fighting. I think Elton John said that, or yeah. Bernie Toppin. So awesome. Well, welcome everybody who has joined. 
as I often like to say in these live shows, uh, let's make Godwin's law great again. Let's make uh, logical fallacies great again. Let's make nipples for men great again. And let's try to bring some sanity to this uh, crumbling world with some gnosis. Uh, again, as always, if you have questions on Facebook or YouTube in the comment sections, please write them in all caps or put a lot of question marks and Vance will try to get to them for Jason. And uh, of course, I actually have some questions from some guests before, and these questions always relate to his work on uh, Prometheism, Prometheus and Atlas, uh, Lovers of Sophia, and his whole uh, the Georgiani corpus of work. And again, we'll get to them. And if uh, I don't even know if Super Chats works anymore with this, but if you do donate, you'll definitely get put at the top of the line. And uh, we'll take care of you. But again, uh, we're using a new streaming software. So we are learning as we go. So Jason, again, uh, it's been great having you on all these interviews for your work. But uh, now you actually came out with a, a novel, Faustian Futurist. Uh, what made you decide to uh, give a go to uh, fiction? Well, you know, to be honest, Miguel, it's an idea that I've had for years. Um, it's been in the back of my mind since uh, even before I wrote Prometheus and Atlas. But um, I wanted to, I suppose you could say, lay a lot of the theoretical groundwork for this uh, novel in the many nonfiction books that I've written to date uh, so that there would be a deeper and, and broader context for understanding what's going on in this book. Wonderful. Yeah. And I, as I told you, Jason, I, I really enjoyed it. I couldn't put it down. I think I read it in one go, uh, probably a lost sleep because I went to bed pretty late. Uh, and uh, again, for the audience, he brings in all his ideas. If you've read his nonfiction, uh, he brings uh, fascinating characters and everything. But this is something it's not like unless you are very uh, prophetic like the main character in your book, Jason. I'm assuming a lot of this got uh, written pretty recently because we do get uh, we get uh, the coronavirus, the Wuhan lab, and if we get even uh, uh, President Harris in the you know in ten years. So you wrote a lot of this this year, or are you really a demigod? <laughs> no, I, I did write a lot of it this year, and particularly the epilogue. Uh, goes into what is essentially a vision of um, the first half of the 21st century from basically now until uh, 2048. And it's called How the Modern World Ended. So the epilogue is a kind of brief history of the future. Uh, but I wanted to add to what I said initially that uh, although one of the reasons why I didn't write this book until now is because I wanted to work out a lot of my more theoretical ideas and have them there <coughs> as a kind of uh, context for the narrative of this novel. Uh, by no means does that suggest that one would need to be familiar with my philosophical works to read this book. In fact, I think that if there are people who are familiar only with my interviews and you know various uh, videos I've done, uh, this novel would probably be the best entry into my writings if, if uh, someone hasn't read any of my other books. Yeah, I would say so, too. It's, um, 
you bring so much to it. And what would you say is the difference between? I, oh, well, like, let me add. It's also a very traumatic entry into my work. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would you say is the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction? That's uh, probably something that you know you appreciate. Um, it's uh, they're both hell. They're both hell. I have to say, <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, but yes, hell. but it's also liberating because. There are truths that you can express in fiction, which, uh, you know, certainly the academic style doesn't afford you the opportunity to give voice to. Um, and also, I think that for anything to be a legitimate work of art, whether it's, you know, in painting or cinema or literature, it has to, to some extent, emerge from out of the unconscious. If a work is very deliberately composed and, you know, every paragraph, let alone every line is, is thought through and carefully planned, then it's not art. It has to be partly emerging from the unconscious. And that also means that there, there is a kind of non-rational knowledge, well, gnosis, that is expressed in a work of fiction in a way that it cannot be in a theoretical text. Yes, and, and at the same time, uh, I guess the difference, even though it can happen with nonfiction, because you're obviously a different person at the end of any nonfiction book, but with fiction, you really are going into yourself and a deep exploration. What's the saying? Uh, every writer, sooner or later, sells out everybody he knows, and most of all, every writer sells himself out because it's very autobiographical, and sometimes you write fiction and you you're, you're writing things you had forgotten about your life or you're confessing to the world. So obviously the, the protagonist reminded me of you and I'm sure a lot of him is you, even though he's, he's not Persian, he's Russian. And I think uh, it's also important that you don't censor yourself mm -hmm. after you've written a work of fiction. Uh, I mean, I could have, you know, I'll confess, I, I wrote this in a kind of, you know, with a great rapidity and, you know, it was it was written uh, like a storm, basically. Um, and I think that also art, legitimate art often emerges that way. And one ought not to go back and sen overly censor oneself. And I haven't done that here. And of course, you know, that's uh, it's dangerous on the one hand. Um, and like you said, it, it gives the reader a look into your subconscious and uh, it's, um, you know, to, to put it simply, it's autobiographical in a way that requires you to risk a degree of vulnerability. Uh, but, but without doing that, I also don't think that it's possible to express your deepest insights. Yeah, exactly. And you can't really help others or show the world if you don't uh, lay it on the table. Or what did one writer say? Writing's easy. I just sit by the keyboard and bleed. Cause, uh, it yeah, I mean, you know, Nietzsche, one of my favorite quotes from Nietzsche is that you should write uh, uh, with, in, in blood. You know, you should write in your own blood. And I've certainly done that uh, in mm -hmm. Faustian Futurists, more yeah, so than yeah. probably any other book I've written. Yeah, because there are things like, does this really happen to Jason in his life? It didn't. It like, doesn't matter. This is a grand story about humanity, about the, the collective unconscious and the individual conscious. This is what art is supposed to be. So 
great stuff. And you you dedicate this book to um, Gerald Feinberg, and he's also a character in your book. Also, there's Russell Targ and Ingo Swan make appearances. But you want to tell the audience who uh, Gerald was because he obviously meant a lot to you. Well, you know, I, I uh, uh, never had the opportunity to meet the man. Um, mm. So my protagonist uh, studied under him at Columbia University. Right. And uh, Gerald Feinberg was a public intellectual. He was someone who became famous for popularizing science, particularly physics, uh, in the 1960s and 70s. He um, was a professor at Columbia University in the physics department. Uh, who gained notoriety for proposing tachyons uh, as a faster-than-light particle that would be the mechanism for um, precognition and psychokinesis. So he was trying to integrate the data of parapsychology into uh, conventional physics. And he also wrote a book called The Prometheus Project, which I think emerged from out of his work in uh, think tanks, high level, you know, um, think tanks that were planning for a kind of technocratic uh, society led by a scientific elite, something along the lines of the, uh, you know, the scientific, I don't want to call it a dictatorship. I mean, those were the words that, uh, that H.G. Um, Wells used to describe this uh, new world order. Uh, that he envisions in the book by that name, um, and that he also describes in his fictional uh, in his fictional novel, uh, The Shape of Things to Come. So, you know, in the Prometheus Project, uh, Gary Feinberg lays out this vision of a transformation of planetary society under the guidance of a technocratic elite uh, with a kind of Promethean ethos that would use various emerging technologies to fundamentally transform the human condition. And his main point in that book was that we need a kind of government, we need a, a, a form of sociopolitical organization capable of setting long-range goals for humanity. And it's, it's very curious that this book is, has basically been taken out of circulation. It was reviewed in all of the uh, leading newspapers and magazines of the time. And you, you are hard-pressed to be able to find a copy for like 600 bucks these days. So it seems to me one of these books that for one reason or another, has been taken out of circulation. Uh, and I also have to wonder why, despite his having been a very prominent public intellectual at that time, uh, he was basically forgotten to history. In any case, he makes an appearance in this novel as a kind of early mentor uh, of the protagonist, Nikolai, uh, in the time when Nikolai's studying at Columbia University. And it's Gary Feinberg who brings the protagonist into the world of psychic espionage. He uh, knows. Hal Putoff, uh, in, in the narrative of my novel, Gary Feinberg knows Hal Putoff, who's also a physicist, of course, and Hal Putoff brings Gary into the uh, initial formative stage of the SRI project that was funded by the CIA to do remote viewing. And he's, Gary is called upon to develop the theoretical framework to be able to sell remote viewing to the Senate Intelligence Committee to explain to them, quote unquote, how this works. And that's uh, initially, how Nikolai gets involved with the project, but then you know they find out that actually he he has uh, rather significant psychic abilities, and he winds up being trained at Stanford as one of the initial remote viewers. 
And for the audience, if you can't tell, this is uh, definitely on the side of nonfiction, very much as Philip K. Dick was on the side of nonfiction. So this is definitely closer than truth, I think. Um, I think I saw a question going up there, Vance. I think it's a relevant question. What was it? I've got it right here. Um, Ed Kaufman asks, what was the most important information that Jason put in his book that he wanted to be understood as nonfiction? I can't answer that question. I mean, come on, what kind of question <laughs> is that? You expect me to give you a straight answer to that? <laughs> that would be telling. There's so much uh, remote viewing that you have everything there. That's, that's exactly the kind of question I cannot answer. <laughs> oh, could you tell us anything about what you wanted to be as nonfiction? Look, uh, there's the, an the awful novel? lot of historical information in this book. Um, now, one of the things that I okay. will say is it also involves the idea of alternate history or, mm -hmm. you know, the Mandela effect. So... Not only is there a lot of historical information in the novel's narrative, but there's an alternate history that's projected in this novel, um, particularly with reference to the Iranian Revolution. I forward a theory in this uh, novel about why the Iranian Revolution took place in 1979. And, um, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but basically uh, it has to do with the fact that the Shah of Iran was a very close ally of the United States. And he was also developing nuclear weapons. And in this novel, you see, you know, an alternate future where Richard Nixon remains president of the United States. And Nixon was actually a close personal friend of the Shah and a staunch backer of his regime. So there's this uh, theory presented about how had Nixon remained in power and the Shah of Iran been encouraged to go on developing nuclear weapons and to test them successfully, you would have actually seen a Soviet fomented communist revolution in Iran and ultimately a Russian invasion of Iran, which would have precipitated the Third World War. And so mm -hmm. the narrator, through his work with SRI and actually other entities uh, engaged in psychic espionage, plays a role in uh, shifting the timeline and in creating an, an alternate history, namely the one that we're living in. Interesting. Got another one, Miguel. You want me to read this other one? Okay, Jason, this is, uh, you can answer this or not, but someone wants to, uh, wants you to clarify your quote unquote beef with Mr. Mishloff. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. In the no, let's not. Discussion. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> let's talk about the other stuff. Uh, Sorry, what I like, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, uh, what, uh, your novel is, uh, can be very visceral, very graphic, uh, the sex is very graphic, but it's not like uh, Game of Thrones sex, which is gratuitous. The, Let's put it this way. Reason. Look, if this were to be made into a film, which I hope that it will be, it'll definitely get an NC-17 rating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unless the ghost of Tipper Gore comes back or something. But yes, but uh, it's it's heartbreaking. A lot of the novel is heartbreaking because uh, Jason shows uh, the, the power play is not just psychics or financial, but uh, sexual in nature. Just Eros kind of can suck a lot these days because, again, it's very heartbreaking what these uh, institutions are doing. But also your bringing in of the culture of Atlantis was also pretty intense. This is not uh, Donovan's Atlantis. Oh, no. How did you create this? 
I don't want these people close to me. I don't, where did you, did you, what is it based on? Uh, my imagination. This, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so no, we look, can't uh, find uh, it. Uh, to be fair. Um, I have studied Atlantis, uh, at length and in depth and, uh, from, from every perspective, from the archaeology, the archaeological evidence for the remnants of this civilization, all the way to the myths told by various uh, societies, such as the Mayans and, you know, the ancient Egyptian records and so forth. Um, and I think that there is enough empirical evidence uh, when you look not just at archaeology, but also anthropology um, and linguistics and so forth. There is enough empirical evidence to conclude that this antediluvian civilization was an extremely authoritarian hierarchical caste society. And that we see a reflection of this structure in uh, the Hindu tradition, in the archaic form of the Vedic religion with its Varna system, its color coding system. Uh, and we see a reflection of it in the totalitarian form of, of the ancient Egyptian pharaonic state which on account of that structure was able to last for thousands of years, uh, the longest living uh, his, uh, civilization in, in recorded history. So I think that, you know, when you look at uh, Tiwanaku, when you look at uh, the Osirian at Abydos, simply the architectural structures alone, the way that they're unmarked, they, they have no distinctive uh, pictorial or iconographic features that would express the personality of a, of a particular culture, uh, the scale of the structures, their high precision, all of this bespeaks an extremely perfectionist totalitarian mentality uh, and a society that sees itself as having achieved perfection. Uh, th th this is a society that from its own uh, standpoint has reached the end of history and would see any further quote-unquote development as decline or degeneracy, which is actually very consistent, I think, with what Plato says, you know, about the Atlantean culture. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you can find empirical evidence that would support the, uh, the image of Atlantis that I've uh, painted in this novel, even down to these um, African guardsmen that I have in the prologue. If you've seen the stone heads, you know, in, um, in the Yucatan, the Olmec stone, quote unquote, Olmec stone heads, they're clearly of African people. And I've always suspected that, you know, when we hear these narratives of the tall white gods, you know, El Hombre Blanco that came across the ocean, uh, the Viracochas and Quetzalcoatl and, you know, these people who were very tall, blonde or red haired um, with the feathered serpent as their symbol, that they were not the only survivors of Atlantis that came to uh, Mesoamerica. There were also these Africans who appear from the, the Olmec heads to be military men. Their, their um, skulls are ensconced in some kind of helmet. And so I have this vision uh, in the prologue of the book in particular, um, but then, you know, we go back into it in the context of the past life memories of the protagonist. But I have this vision in the prologue, particularly of um, 
these uh, basically kshatriyas. They're the warrior caste of the society who are akin to uh, Nubians. They're, they're these, you know, really almost blue corn chip colored, jet black, hulking uh, guardsmen or, or you know, uh, um, military caste of the Atlantean society. So it would be safe to say uh, that Atlantis, I'm hearing an echo, is that me or you? Hmm. Probably you're, okay. So let me try this again. So it'd be safe to say that this uh, totalitarian uh, society, very ancient one, and of course, yeah, I guess you, even if you talk about it in the book, the, the Brahmins coming down to India set this case system and oppressed the people mm -hmm. for a long time. You'd say that human history is partly those in power trying to get us back to that enlightenment, that power control, that author, you know, even if it's not in history, it's in our, it's in the collective unconscious. You think that's one of the arts of history, Jason? Yeah. Uh, and so in this novel, I am basically presenting this vision of a surviving underground Atlantean old guard mm -hmm. who wants to reemerge and, uh, you know, rebuild Atlantis on the ruins of the modern world. And you know, I find this uh, interesting that people always ask the question with respect to the UFO phenomenon. Well, if they wanted to do us harm, you know, they could attack us any day or, you know, well, why haven't they, you know, just invaded us or something? Uh, this is an extremely naive objection. Okay. Civilizations that are very long lived, particularly if they would include individuals who each have, you know, several thousand year lifespan would be very patient and they would understand cycles of history and, and rises and falls in civilizations. And they would wait until an optimal moment when they would be greeted as liberators or saviors rather than uh, be resisted as oppressors. And so mm -hmm. what I present in this novel is a vision of the uh, a long-term plan by this underground Atlantean elite to allow modern civilization to run its course and destroy itself, helping it along uh, at various points. Um, and uh, after precipitating this collapse, to then present themselves as saviors and be welcomed by the majority of a, you know, a demoralized and desperate, uh, poverty-stricken, disease-ridden humanity. Oh, like us in a few years. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and in just about, you know, 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're ready for us, man. We'll be ripe. I like it in the comment section. There's somebody called Plume Quetzal. So it looks like they're already on to us, Vance. They already sent a spy. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's Amanda B. It was inevitable. Hey, Amanda B. How are you? And uh, there's one part in your book you write, uh, which is more than 50% of UFOs are seen entering or exiting the Earth's ocean. And I'm sure this is a fact, right? This yes. is a Pacific Rim kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, it is a fact. And uh, so what happens in my novel is that Nikolai, the protagonist, winds up being tasked specifically to do psychic espionage on the UFOs that are entering and exiting uh, the oceans. So he's tracking 
these um, others. It turns out they're not aliens. It turns out they are survivors of a vastly ancient human civilization um, that has facilities not only underneath uh, the Antarctic ice sheet, but also on the moon, on the dark side of the moon, and on Mars. And again, here, you know, I'm basing myself on uh, quite a lot of empirical evidence. Um, the remote viewers did look at the dark side of the moon. Uh, Ingo Swan, in particular, described in great Ingo, detail, yeah. uh, the, and who, by the way, makes an appearance in my novel. Um, Ingo Swan described in great detail a city on the dark side of the moon, which was also captured by uh, National Reconnaissance uh, Office um, uh, lunar surveyors in the years leading up to the Apollo missions, they photographed this uh, city on the dark side of the moon, and it was airbrushed from out of everything that they released to the public. We know this from uh, uh, Carl Wolf's uh, testimony, um, you know, at the uh, disclosure project that, that Stephen Greer set up. One of the, the most spectacular pieces of testimony uh, that Greer collected was from this I think he was a sergeant at the time. He was a photographic specialist who was brought into an NSA facility in the 1960s at a time when, you know, the public didn't even know the NSA existed. So he thought they, they said NASA. And he was brought into this NSA facility and he claims to, in the course of working on repairing these photo, uh, photograph processing machines, to have seen the city on the dark side of the moon, which, you know, he described. And interestingly enough, uh, his description matches Ingo's remote viewing session of the, the city on the dark side of the moon. So there are these structures that, that are not metallic. They're not like our, you know, steel reinforced buildings or anything like that, or like our steel and glass skyscrapers. They, they all appear to be made of something like poured stone. Uh, similar to, you know, the structures at Tiwanaku or um, at the Osirian at Abydos, they're megalithic and gigantic in, in size. Fascinating. Yes, definitely a remote viewing in your nonfiction and fiction works is predominant. And um, why don't we talk about the, the title, Faustian Futurist? Obviously, Githa is a big theme going through, the, through your work, the deal with the devil. Yeah, well, uh, there's a book within a book. Um, the protagonist writes a, a text, Faustian Futurism, <coughs> in an attempt to basically uh, get into the good graces of a group of neo-fascists, uh, people who are the deepest layer of the deep state. They are the... They're the uh, uh, successors to the Germans who were brought over by the United States in Operation Paperclip. And they're essentially plotting the rise of a Fourth Reich from out of the American military industrial intelligence complex. And the protagonist, you know, has undergone a variety of experiences, very traumatic experiences that uh, bring him to the conclusion that he's probably been subjected to some kind of mind control for most of his life and that he's being manipulated. And um, long story short, he wants to understand who's behind uh, th these attempts to guide his life in an ominous direction. And so he writes this book, Faustian Futurism, 
in order to appeal to this cabal. And the, the core of this uh, book, Faustian Futurism, is the idea that there is an internal tension in the ideology of fascism. That when you look at 1920s and 30s uh, fascism, whether it's, you know, um, in uh, Mussolini's Italy or in Hitler's Germany, you see that there is a, an extreme polarity between, on the one hand, traditionalism, the kind of ideas that you see in René Gonon or Julius Evola, this uh, cyclical view of history and, and cyclical cosmology, which sees modernity only as degeneracy and decline and reveres the Hindu caste system and hopes for a, an immediate reversal, a sudden reversal of the, the uh, degeneracy of modernity by the reestablishment of a caste society, which would be neo-feudal in nature, where you know the masses would, would live like close to the earth in a very simple uh, lifestyle, a very traditional lifestyle. Um, and uh, it's a school of thought that sees the various customs of traditions around the world as a kind of refraction of a single primordial tradition that ought to be restored with the rise of a new golden age after the Kali Yuga or the age of the wolf, the final and darkest age runs its course. So on the one hand, you had people in 1920s and 30s, Italy and Germany, who inclined toward that way of thinking. Uh, Julius Evola in Italy was certainly one of them. On the other hand, you had futurists who were radically anti-traditional, people like F.T. Marinetti, uh, who advocated the total transformation of the human condition through hyper-modern technological development. In a sense, uh, people like Marinetti, the Italian futurists, were forerunners of transhumanism. And this same F.T. Marinetti was a close collaborator of Benito Mussolini in the 1920s, until they later had a falling out because Mussolini, you know, got closer to the Reich and his policies. He, he was under coercion by Nazi Germany. So uh, it's interesting how you have this extreme polarity. And so what Nikolai does is he tries to develop an ideology that's a fusion of these two uh, seemingly uh, contradictory worldviews. And he develops a kind of futurism that is still rooted in a particular heritage and tradition, namely that of what Oswald Spengler calls Faustian civilization. And the Faustian in this novel uh, means very much what it does for Spengler when he you know, adopts this term, term from out of Goethe. It's the idea of unappeasable striving and that impulse which is behind the impetus for you know, unbounded exploration and unlimited innovation that you see in Western civilization. A civilization hell-bent on progress. Uh, but what Nikolai argues is that that uh, reaching, that striving for the infinite, which is unappeasable, is particular to a certain uh, sort of ethno-linguistic group, a certain culture. And when I say unappeasable striving, I mean, this goes back to the central image in, in Goethe's Faust, where, you know, Faust makes a deal with Mephistopheles in which he says that if he's ever satisfied 
with the present moment, if he ever relaxes into the luxuries or the pleasures of his life, then uh, Mephistopheles can drag his soul down to hell. That, that basically um, his end of the deal is to never be satisfied with the present moment. And this kind of unappeasable striving for the infinite, which you see reflected, as Spengler argues, in the structure of Gothic architecture, you know, in these spires that I think in a way are the, the embryonic form of the skyscrapers of Gotham. Um, this unappeasable striving is quintessentially characteristic of Western civilization. Uh, and although it, it's reaching for the infinite, it's particular to a certain, you know, uh, cultural historical matrix. Do you really think it's reaching uh, for the infinite? I mean, our civilization, it seems like it's just reaching for the uh, control over the finite. I think that in order to reach for the infinite, you need to uh, attempt to control the finite. In other words, when I say reaching for the infinite, or, you know, when I think uh, Spengler describes this as the hallmark of the Faustian, it's not reaching for the infinite in the sense of reaching for an infinite being like some god or communion with the creator. It's reaching for the uh -huh. infinite in the sense of unlimited exploration, unbounded discovery, that there will always be something more to conquer. So uh, it's, yeah. it's a kind of conquest of space and time, which you see uh, as the defining characteristic of Western civilization, and which, uh, if we're to believe the, the accounts of uh, people like um, Nick Cook or Joseph Farrell, who studied the history of, of zero-point energy and anti-gravity propulsion, it's the kind of conquest of space and time that the Nazis were after when they engaged in uh, Project Kronos, this uh, engineering of the bell of a kind of zero-point energy device that uh, was capable of warping space-time. Got it. Yep. Glad I asked. Those Nazis and Atlanteans aren't going away. Huh. I, uh, I, somebody asked, are you going to put out an audio version, Jason? I do plan to, but it'll be a long time before that happens, so I wouldn't wait for it. All right, awesome. Yeah, and uh, I was also, I need to mention a few notes for the audience. I am offering vo my voiceover. I've done some books. I'm not selling to you, Jason, right now, but I had it on my <laughs> notes. To, I've got to always forget to do the marketing part in the show because I get so excited with the guests and all that. But I am offering voiceover. I've done some books this year, some commercials. So if you're interested, let me know. And I also wanted to mention uh, for the audience, and I might do this as a bonus, uh, uh, Ramona Fradden is, is a great comic book artist. She uh, pioneered the Wonder Woman book, but she was also a Gnostic, and she wrote a book called The Gnostic Faustus, and she details the entire legend of Mephistopheles and Faustus, and, you know, before even before Goethe and the folklore ties it into the Gnostics and basically comes very well argues it is a very Gnostic uh, tale, but thought I'd put that out for the audience and for I'm going to definitely look into that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll add that as a bonus to this interview and I can send you a, our interview if you want to take a look, Jason and Please do. It's a, good, yeah, it's a good book and again, she's one of the really pioneers of the golden age of comic books. Uh, did Wonder Woman and all that. So Awesome. I don't think I have any, and always for the audience, this show will be out uh, in audio version in a couple days. 
on all podcast channels, uh, iTunes, uh, uh, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of those, uh, it will be out and, uh, and a lot of good stuff. Uh, any questions from the audience, Vance? Um, if there are, I haven't uh, picked them up. Nobody's uh, highlighted them to the ability for me to see. <laughs> They're all hiding. And <laughs> I've got one, though. Uh, sure, um, you of know, course. In Faust, uh, you know, it wasn't his motivation to find his lost love, right? Um, I forget. Yes, and that's also one of the reasons why I chose this title, because this is a tragic love story. Um, and, you know, this whole relationship between Faust and Helen of Troy in, in, in Goethe uh, is relevant, let's just say, definitely, to the protagonist's tragic and tortured relationship with, um, well, multiple female figures in the novel, but yeah. in particular, Anna. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely another reason why I chose that title. Well, it's the dangers of anamnesis because these characters remember too much. And if you're not ready for it. Well, also, you know, that aspect of the Faust story comes up in particular in the chapter where the protagonist is remembering his past life as Nikola Tesla. Oh, Tesla's in there. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, T Tesla plays a very significant role in the novel. And um, in particular, it's it's uh, his regret that he didn't pursue a relationship with Sarah Bernhardt in that context, because, you know, Tesla and Sarah Bernhardt were very close friends, but uh, they never got romantically involved in the way that the, the uh, protagonist uh, laments um, having missed the opportunity uh, for, you know, uh, that kind of deeper relationship with her. And so at that point in the novel as well, I, I draw from Goethe and I refer back to Faust. Wow. And a story. And a story is, yeah, it's heartbreaking. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> You'll have to oh, all my book. favorite people. I got to read this. Uh, you know, I've, I've, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Goethe, I thought that's, isn't that how he gets out of the deal? Because uh, Mephistopheles offers him the most beautiful woman in the world, but it's not really her. It's a demon. So he gets out of the... <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I'll have to go look again. I think I think I saw a couple of uh, super chats there, Vance. I think let's see. Somebody asked. Uh, let's see. Oh, from an well, we have to um, ask, from an aesthetic perspective. <laughs> why doesn't pineapples work on pizza? I say I love pineapple on pizza, and come at me, Twitter mom. Did Selwyn ask there. that question? Did Selwyn yes. ask that? And Is it really? Yeah. Come on, man. Selwyn, give it a break. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know that guy. I'm, I'm going to no. Selwyn's one of my best friends, one of my closest friends. He was uh, the greatest student that I had in all my years of teaching. And uh, I'm going to make sure to take him down to, uh, you know, Little Italy or the village and uh, <laughs> ask him to point out to me where in a legitimate Italian pizza parlor they have pineapple on pizza here in New York. Well, they just closed all the restaurants down, Jason. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> well, pizzerias might be an exception. Yeah, yeah. You know, after all, it's Cuomo out. who shut down. Right, Cuomo's the one who shut down all our restaurants. So, yeah, yeah a little yeah. nepotism there. <laughs> and somebody has thoughts on thoughts on to the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. I'm not aware of. I don't know what. What, that what is. was the question? Thoughts on to the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. I'm not. Yeah, I look. 
I don't want to say too much about that. I'm not all that familiar with it. But I will say this in response to that question. I am very concerned about some kind of a engineered, uh, carefully calibrated, limited disclosure on the subject of UFOs mm. that may be taking place right now. Um, this whole story about the Tic Tac, you know, uh, yeah. and, and all these people who are coming out uh, discussing their experiences on the East Coast in the Navy, witnessing these things entering and exiting the ocean. Um, and all that, yeah. It concerns me a little bit because, okay, sure, of course these things are happening, but they've been happening for decades. And we've had excellent uh, UFO cases, including ones well-documented by various militaries of the world for decades, going all the way back to 1947. We've had cases you know, from the Brazilian military, the French military that are extraordinary. Why this all of a sudden? And my concern is that there is an effort by certain people closely connected to uh, various elements of the government, the, you know, the, the Pentagon, other intelligence agencies, to make it as if they are seriously researching this phenomenon for the first time, and that up till now they've had nothing to hide. So it's all going to be swept under the rug, and we're going to get this limited disclosure of, you know, whatever they've observed with these Tic Tacs or, you know, and, and they're going to say that, okay, now maybe we're going to research what kind of propulsion uh, technologies behind this, what its physics implications are. They've been doing that for decades, they, you know. So, I, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about a disclosure that is actually a cover-up disguised as a disclosure. Uh, so that's what I would say in response to that question. Like a sleight of hand almost, you know, like we're talking to the aliens, right? That Israeli general, the retired general. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you must listen to us because we are talking to the aliens. Yeah, they, I'm very they, skeptical of that Israeli <laughs> general story. I, again, to me, that has all the hallmarks of disinformation, which, by the way, is a major theme in my novel. Uh, the idea of disinformation and psyops, um, you know, it, it, that story to me has all the hallmarks of a little bit of truth sprinkled in with a lot of lies, uh, you know, in order to disinform the public and misdirect. That's the way they do it. Exactly. Embed some facts in a narrative and then go with the narrative. And there's a saying in uh, Persia, and correct me if uh, it's made up, but it goes, uh, all evil turns stupid. Is evil turning stupid today, Jason, or are we just getting even stupider? Because uh, I, I think they're getting stupider because you have no these archons have no imagination, but people still keep biting for all these dumb. Narratives. Yeah, well, they prey on people's stupidity. So I don't know if evil gets stupid, but when you get stupid, you know, evil prevails. Um, so I, you know, by the way, I mean, I, I tend not to. Uh, like to characterize anything as evil. You know, I'm very much with Nietzsche in that regard and with, um, with the Buddha. Uh, so, you know, I recognize very, uh, you know, I, I recognize the reality of the archons and, and they appear in one form or another through all of my theoretical works and most definitely are a looming presence in this work of fiction. Um, but I think that the best way to approach the archons is to engage with them from out of a level of discernment and insight that is not hampered by a reactive demonization of them as some kind of a immutable evil 
uh, that I think is not the way to prevail. And when you get trapped into that kind of binary morality, what also tends to happen is a reversal where what was once considered evil turns out being, you know, uh, embraced as angelic and a source of salvation. And so you get caught in this kind of bait and switch, you know, good cop, bad cop routine. And it could turn out that what appears to be good and what appears to be evil are two heads of the same hydra. I would say that's well said. And what advice would you have today? Because it seems, and please tell me if you disagree, uh, uh, you probably don't because I do follow you on Twitter and Facebook, obviously. But it seems that w it almost seems like the whoever, the Atlanteans, the Nazis, the Archons, it doesn't matter. They want to split this country apart. I mean, they love this divide and conquer. If we're fighting on the streets over masks and all this silly stuff, then they can easily social engineer better. But do you think they really want to split the United States up on purpose? Yeah, look, I didn't really want to get into this subject, but since you brought it up, I will go ahead and, and, and uh, you know, do that. Um, I, I do think so. I think that, and I've expressed this in other uh, nonfiction texts that I've written before, the essay Black Sunrise in Lovers of Sophia and uh, extensively in Prometheism. Um, this idea that when the United States in Project Paperclip imported thousands of Nazi scientists, okay, and made them the bedrock of the military industrial complex, when the OSS, our wartime intelligence service, merged with the Galen network, the network of Nazi spies in Eastern Europe to co-constitute the CIA, mm -hmm. We had a hardcore fascist elite embed itself into uh, the deepest strata of what became the deep state in America. And for as long as the United States was useful as a vehicle to defeat Soviet communism, mm -hmm. their interests were aligned with the interests of, of certain American elites and uh, you know certain segments of the American population. Okay, the United States of America was a useful vehicle for them until 1991. Almost immediately afterwards, we saw an attempt to control, demolish American society on the part of this deep state through, through various uh, ideological projects disguised as calls for social justice that are really meant to degrade and disintegrate the social fabric of this country. And also, I think, through the manufacturing of false conflicts, what happened within a decade of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, September 11th. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, to, to tell you the truth, their fingers are all over it. If you really research 9-11, you see it goes back to Deutsche Bank. It goes back to people who are closely connected. Uh, the Bush family, for example, closely connected to Nazi Germany. Um, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush former director of the CIA is, you know, one of those uh, German Americans who was actually, uh, you know, closely connected. His father was closely connected, Prescott, to the Reich and was fundraising for uh, Hitler in the United States in the 1930s. So anyway, make a long story short. Yes, I think that the United States has outlived its usefulness for this um, 
they, they call themselves the spider, the spinna, this cabal of fascists. Uh, and we are seeing now an attempt to bring about a disintegration, an implosion, uh, a, a uh, collapse of the United States of America following the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they used one of their enemies in order to defeat the other one, and now they've turned on their host. You know, the parasite has turned on the host uh, and is bringing about uh, the, the collapse and disintegration of the United States. And that's a vision that I um, lay out in some detail in Faustian Futurist, particularly uh, in the epilogue, uh, How the Modern World Ended. I describe the second American Civil War and the disintegration of the United States. Uh, but there isn't a fatalism about it. Uh, because what the protagonist is trying to do actually is to prevent that possible future from coming uh, coming into being. He is someone who, through his psychic work, through his psychic espionage work with the, the um, actually naval intelligence, uh, he has already altered the timeline. He's already um, revised history, and so he is actually intent on preventing. The course of events depicted in the epilogue from coming to pass. Well said. How about China? Well, yeah, I mean, they, is China intended massively? They feature massively in this book, uh, in in a really horrifying way. Um, in a nutshell, what I suggest is that the Chinese who are about to engage in a lunar uh, exploration program, if I was about to say lunar colonization program, I don't think they're going to colonize the moon, though because uh, they won't be allowed to in the same way that we weren't allowed to, but they are about to engage in a manned lunar uh, exploration program. And so the Chinese know full well uh, about the people who are on the moon. And I think that they've already decided on a very different policy with respect to uh, the intelligence behind UFOs than the one the United States or the Soviet Union pursued. And so the Chinese policy rooted in their Confucian mentality is that they will act as intermediaries or middlemen facilitating the uh, rule of these ancestors, these sagacious uh, antediluvian elites, that the Chinese will effectively cut a deal with these people to sell out humanity and become something akin to uh, the Raj uh, that uh, helped the British colonize India, that they will be, you know, to planet Earth, what the Raj was to British govern India, a kind of uh, a managerial class that helps these resurfacing Atlanteans to more effectively govern the planet and establish order. And I lay out in the novel why I think that's the case, what it is about Chinese society um, and the Chinese mentality that would lend itself toward that kind of uh, decision. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I was just thinking today, when did politically cor political correctness start? 91 when I was going to college, when you could, you, you know, starting to appear with teachers and all that. So I think you're right. And I always thought, I bet George W., uh, you know, her, uh, I'm sorry, Bush Sr. was there when 
Kennedy was assassinated that day. It's just a feeling I have. So, like you said, that family was into the Nazis. Uh, any other questions uh, there, uh, Vance? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, let's get to Anasi's Wolf, which is, uh, I believe, your yeah, former right. student. Uh, I had no way of knowing that, by the way. And he wanted to know, let's see. Here's a serious question, he says. What is it about Prometheus as a titan of forethought that allows us to bear the burden of unappeasable strife? I'm not sure about the way that question is phrased. Um, I'm not either. <laughs> I think your... that, look. He didn't pass uh, that part of the test. When look, here's, here's the thing, is that the Promethean ethos is multifaceted. It has various dimensions to it, okay? Uh, and one of them is this unappeasable striving, which Spengler sees as uh, definitive of the Faustian, as, as the quintessential characteristic of the Faustian civilization. But that unappeasable striving has to be balanced by certain other elements of the Promethean ethos so that it doesn't um, lead us to damnation. I mean, the, the Faustian deal with the devil is, in a way, a lot darker. It's a lot more hellish than uh, the positive myth of Prometheus as a martyr and champion of mankind, as a, you know, uh, as a uh, deity who sacrifices himself for the sake of mankind. So there are various aspects of the Promethean ethos, such as the willingness for self-sacrifice. I mean, Prometheus endured this uh, living hell of uh, being chained, you know, to the Caucasus and having his liver pecked out every day. He endures a fate worse than death in order to champion humanity's right to self-determination and in order to stand for our, uh, our right to cultivate ourselves and to be the masters of our own destiny. So self-sacrifice is an important aspect of the Promethean, which in some way, uh, if not tempers the unappeasable striving for the infinite, at least balances it in an important way. And the other, another aspect of the Promethean which um, has to complement that Faustian striving is the will to enlightenment, the will toward enlightenment of others. Uh, Prometheus is the ultimate enlightener god, right? I mean, all these, these gods like Quetzalcoatl that bring knowledge and wisdom to peoples, they are, uh, as far as I see it, uh, various instantiations of the Prometheus archetype. So a, a will to conquer the infinite, a will to become master over space and time, when it's not complemented by uh, the intention to enlighten society and to elevate um, the, uh, the wisdom and broaden the knowledge of mankind, is actually, uh, it's demonic in a, in a really negative sense. And that's, that's, the, you know, that's the really infernal aspect of the Faustian which is not characteristic of the Promethean, because the Promethean always endeavors to at least cultivate uh, a level of uh, development in society so that it will be possible to enlighten mankind, um, to uh, you know, pursue innovation and um, exploration 
in ways that benefit the public and that you know ultimately lead to uh, social progress. So these are aspects of the Promethean ethos that are in some way corrective to the most uh, perilous dimensions of the Faustian mentality. Why am I thinking of Christ too? Um, you know, the Promethean about the suffering. Um, well, suffering Prometheus to is the benefit. first Christ figure in history, but that's a right. that's a backwards way of putting it because actually Christ is a Prometheus-like figure. It's the other way around. <laughs> I mean, who came first, right? Prometheus Christ came is first. Aping right. Prometheus. Christ is aping Prometheus insofar as he's a god who sacrifices himself for mankind. Now, of course, there's other dimensions to the Jesus archetype that don't match up to various elements of the Promethean, except, of course, in the Gnostic version of Jesus, who is ah, a very, right. I mean, the Gnostic Christ is a very Promethean figure. I'd say, you know, it, it's fair to say the Gnostic Christ is an iteration of the Prometheus archetype. Yeah, Miguel, you want some more questions? I got some more here. Yeah, one more question, and then we can start having some fun with some movies. Uh, I don't want to give any more away of the novel. We've covered a lot. There's a lot more, and it's it's definitely a good read. And if you want to, as Jason mentioned, check out his essay, Dark Sunrise in Lovers of Sophia. Black Sunrise. Great, oh, Black Sunrise. Okay. <clears throat> Got that wrong. But any, any other questions, Vance? Oh, yeah. Um, Jason, uh, uh, Mordecai Lehman wants to know if you believe in extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings or both. Do you believe they exist? I try not to them? believe in anything, but I think there's overwhelming evidence, both for extraterrestrials, namely people coming back and forth between here and other planets, and also for people traveling between dimensions, which, which is the same thing as to say that, uh, you know, there are beings who are capable of manipulating space-time, because manipulation of space-time is interdimensional. It's inherently interdimensional. Right. Um, uh, and another question from Joseph Korea. Um, do blood types play any role? Well, this is about the novel, but I'll ask it anyway. Too late started. Uh, do blood types play any role in the story? You know, the RH negative and all that stuff. Uh, not in specific detail. Not in specific detail. But there are... Well, let's just leave it at this. Race is definitely a theme in this okay. novel. All right. How about the um, shifting gears? Thoughts about the, uh, this isn't Mordecai again, the fascist elites relation to AI? You know, I think that that cabal wants to prevent us from reaching the technological singularity, one component of which would, of course, be the development of strong artificial intelligence. They would see our uh, achievement of singularity-level technologies as a kind of um, watershed moment. Uh, it, it would be the passing of a threshold beyond which they would be incapable of controlling us. And so, as I suggest in this novel, uh, they intend to intervene in very dramatic ways on the way to the technological singularity in order to prevent us from reaching it. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Jason Reza Giorgiani on his new novel, Faustian Futurist. 
We continue going intense, but we have a lot of fun too, as we talk about Gnostic movies and several Gnostic thinkers and several expressions of Gnosticism in modern art. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon that work in the podcast provider of your choice. As mentioned, for patrons and AB Prime members, beyond the second part of our interview, I will include a past interview with Ramona Fradden on her book, The Gnostic Faustus. Since much of Jason's novel is dependent on the legend of Faustus and Mephistopheles, I thought you might find this very useful. And it's an incredible interview with a deep researcher and one of the legends when it comes to comic books. Don't miss it. So please become a member or patron for the full Faustian bargain and to support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Go to thegodabovegod.com for means to assist and get the infernal rewards. Or just contact me. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. Might be the only way to counteract the nutsack grip Yaldi Baldi has placed on the collective consciousness of humanity. And as I always say too, if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of Archons, just message me. I'll be glad to give you any show on the burning house do it all the time thanks for being here thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real hello and goodbye as always Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.